Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the distinct honor of connecting with James Nestor, who is a science journalist and author of the book, Breath. It was absolutely one of my favorite books I read in 2021. And in preparation for this podcast together, I read it a second time and got even more out of it. We dove deep into how humans have become such poor breathers and the role of crooked teeth and how it has to do with poor breathing. We discuss the nasal anatomy and its impact on breathing, the role of alternate nostril breathing, as well as the vagus nerve, anatomical changes that occur with aging, how overeaters become overbreathers. And we dove deep into the role of chewing and how our palates and our facial bones have actually changed evolutionary wise. We discussed his experiences in the Paris catacombs. And lastly, we dove into breath work and how that actually impacts the autonomic nervous system. I really hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Well, James, welcome. It's really a pleasure to connect with you. As I was telling you before we started recording, I've now read your book twice and recommend it to my lay public friends, as well as my clinician friends, because I got so much out of it. I would really love to start the conversation today talking about some of the things that have changed structurally in our face and our nose, because this is information that was just incredibly, it blew my mind. I mean, I literally was at a loss for words to how to explain how surprising all this information was. And largely because for many of us, myself included, when I think about all the dental extractions I had for braces in the 1980s, and I'm realizing, you know, this kind of cumulative domino effect of how the structural changes in our bodies have really impacted our quality of breathing. Well, when I was first starting off really seriously researching the subject, I remember talking to a few dentists and it was these dentists who told me, they said, well, you know, the reason why some people are breathing so poorly now is because their mouths are too small. I was like, what are you talking about? Mouths just don't randomly grow too small. He's like, yeah, why do we have crooked teeth? And I thought, well, because the teeth are growing in crooked. They said, no, it's because your mouth is too small for your face. And so teeth grow in crooked. And when you have a small mouth, you have a smaller airway, which can lead to all of these different breathing problems. And this sounded completely nuts to me. And I told them so. And they said, well, why don't you go look at ancient skulls and compare them to modern skulls and see the difference for yourself? So I, I did. I went to the University of Pennsylvania to the Morton Collection, which is one of the largest assemblages of ancient skulls in the world. And it was extremely spooky to walk into this place and see these shells just lined with skulls from Asia, Africa, Europe, North America, South America, Poland, wherever. And they all had perfectly straight teeth, every single one of them. And these huge pronathic faces. And they had wide airways that come with that. If you look at a modern skull, about 90% of us have some sort of dysfunction in our mouths. Malocclusion leads to crooked teeth, overbites, underbites, all of that. So with that smaller mouth, 
that can lead to so many chronic respiratory problems. This was the first time I'd ever heard of this. And it was something I was pretty shocked to learn about because I learned that evolution meant progress, that we were supposed to be getting stronger and better with every generation, which is total BS. And all you have to do is look at your own face and look at your ancestors' faces and, and you can see that for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it really gave me pause as I thought about my own, uh, you know, dental history and, you know, I had eight teeth pulled out of my mouth when I got braces and back in the 1980s, that's just what they did. I mean, thankfully my children didn't require, you know, they had minimal orthodontic care, but they didn't require any teeth being pulled out of their mouths, which I have to give my credit to my husband who never had braces that, you know, they inherited his genetics and not mine. But what I found really interesting was you know, when I reflect on all the patients I've taken care of over the years, how many of them were obligate mouth breathers. And we didn't really think much of that. We just said, oh, they're an obligate mouth breather. And because of that, they have these physiologic changes to their mouth and, you know, they have to work a whole lot harder at breathing. And so what was interesting to me when I was reading your book is that in the book, you talk about 90% of us are breathing incorrectly. So most, if not all of us, 40% of us suffer from chronic nasal obstruction. And then 50% of us are obligate mouth breathers. And although I think I'm very cognizant of the fact that I don't breathe through my mouth, even when I'm wa outside walking or exercising, now I make a really big effort to keep my mouth closed. Well, that's wise. <laughs> and I had always thought that that was just an insult because of the way it makes you look, because that was always associated, at least when I was growing up with, with someone who looks kind of silly, right? Mouth breather. I had no idea that the pathway through which we breathe air can make such an enormous impact on our health, our well-being, our sleep quality, our anxiety, panic levels, asthma. I mean, I could go on and on, but the science has been there and it's been there for decades. And then if you go back even further, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, researchers were finding from indigenous cultures that they celebrated nasal breathing for all the same reasons we celebrate it today. They didn't have the scientific measurements that we do, but they noticed that people who were breathing through their noses were much better off. And this is something that's so simple. People think, oh, it's not going to make a big difference to me. Try it. <laughs> and then after you try it, look at the science and you see that this is a chronic widespread problem. Few people are talking about it. And it's one of the easiest fixes you can do. I want to be very clear that some people are mouth breathers because they have structural problems in their noses, they have polyps, severely deviated septums, they've broken their nose. For those people, they need more serious interventions. And that's where a responsible ENT can help out. But for the vast majority of us, the nose is a use it or lose it organ. So the less we use it, the less we're going to be able to use it. We become mouth breathers. So which is bad for all the reasons we were just talking about. Yeah, no. And I think for so many people, we just assume breathing is effortless and breathing is easy. And so one of the things that I found interesting when I was reading the book was talking about the net impact of obligate mouth breathing, what that does to our hydration status, how that impacts our deep sleep. And I'm a huge proponent of high quality sleep. And probably I feel like it's foundational to our lives and it's not celebrated enough, but I found it really interesting that there's this correlation with not enough deep sleep 
and the thirst and the need to urinate at night, how many people don't recognize that nocturia is not normal? And, you know, there's this association with the obligate mouth breathers and this net impact on getting up at night to urinate. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, if you look at, uh, you're right about deep sleep. If we're not able to get that big chunk of deep sleep and that deep sleep comes earlier on in our sleep cycle, then our bodies aren't able to function properly. So our brains aren't able to reset. Our brains flush out during deep sleep and remove metabolites and allow us to start anew in the morning. But also if you're looking at the stress response and if you're looking at different hormones that have to be stimulated in deep sleep that can actually help us comfortably hold our water instead of the the need to release it. All of this is essential to entering into that, that proper deep sleep cycle earlier on in our sleep. And I always wondered this, I have a dog and, you know, after she eats dinner at around five, you know, she can sit down she won't go outside until the morning. I'm like, wow, what a bladder that dog might have. But no, we're all built to do this. We're built so that we don't have to wake up three times. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's the only reason why people urinate at night. It could be you're drinking way too much water. There could be problems, other problems with your kidney. I don't know. But I do know that having proper deep sleep is essential to health and you will never ever really be healthy unless you're able to hit all those stages of sleep. And I also know that a lot of people aren't talking about the links between how you're breathing and your sleep quality and how your breathing can have a huge impact on your snoring and even some levels of sleep apnea. I think it's really important because, you know, on so many levels, you know, you touched on the physiologic things that can be at risk or put people at risk for developing problems with mouth breathing. But one thing that I found interesting, and I just wrote down a lot of statistics as I was reading your book, because I, of course, I was nerding out on all the details. And one of the statistics was that 90% of kids have a deformity in the nose and mouth. That's 90%. And 45% of adults snore occasionally. Like I'm not talking light snoring, like maybe our dogs do, but actual snoring. And I know when I worked in cardiology as an NP, we would send people off for these polysonography tests, which of course they hated and trying to explain to patients that the net impact on not getting high quality sleep had profound downward effects, like thinking about the role of the glymphatic system and how it's this waste and recycling process that goes on in the brain, but goes on in deep sleep. And if you miss out on that, it has a lot of negative net impact on, you know, on your day-to-day life because your body doesn't get that restful sleep. So I'm curious when you were doing a lot of the research for the book, I'm sure you probably felt like you fell down a rabbit hole when we're talking about the anatomy of the nose and the actual breathing, and I've never thought as thoughtfully about it as I did when I was reading your book, let's talk about nasal erections. This is a concept I'd never heard about. I thought was fascinating. And, you know, what is this about and why would this be of interest to listeners? I'm not sure why it would be of interest to listeners. I'll tell you why it was of interest to me is because I learned from Dr. Jack or Nyack, who's the chief of rhinology research down at Stanford, 
that our noses are covered with erectile tissue. It's the same erectile tissue that's, you know, where in our genitals and it operates in the same way. So it becomes engorged with blood where it will clog up our noses and then it becomes flaccid where we'll be able to clearly breathe through our noses in each side of your nostrils actually fluctuate throughout the day. So after about 30 minutes to three to four hours, the right side or the left side of your nostril will tend to become engorged with blood and will gently plug up. It doesn't mean completely plug up, but it will mean the other nostril is dominant. And this just happens back and forth all day long. And I remember asking some rhinologists, I said, well, the body wouldn't do this randomly. Why does it do that? So that we don't know exactly why, but there's a lot of really strong theories right now. Basically, we know why, but no one's really willing to put up the flag. And why? Because that air that we breathe through our nostrils will affect our body and it will affect our brain in different ways. Yogis have known this for thousands of years, which is why they've developed alternate nostril breathing, which allows you to hack into these different functions. But our bodies do this naturally. And so it's another reason if you're a mouth breather, you are not getting these functions, all of this additional balancing that is coming from your nasal passages cycling from one side to the other and those nasal erections. One of the most common concerns I see in perimenopause and menopause is hair loss, hair breakage, hair shedding. And knowing that over 80 million Americans are impacted by this is both reassuring, but it's wonderful to know that there are products available that can help with these symptoms. Divi is good for those with hair shedding or thinning due to stress in perimenopause or menopause. They can be helpful for addressing dry scalp. And have you wanted to take control of your hair health but aren't sure where to start? This is where a Divi can be hugely impactful. I love their scalp serum. And we know that the scalp serum improves the appearance of breakage, nourishes our hair follicles and removes product and oil buildup. There are some key ingredients, including tea tree oil, which works to reduce and prevent excess oil buildup on the scalp, amino acids that help to strengthen hair, fight frizz, which is my greatest concern and reduce breakage and copper tripeptide 1, which is a small protein composed of the three amino acids to facilitate a clean and hydrated scalp, as well as hyaluronic acid, which is nourishing and hydrating to our scalps. As I mentioned, Divi is not just for those experiencing hair loss. I found it to be hugely helpful for scalp health and all of Divi's products, including their shampoos and conditioners, Come together to create a full daily solution that helps women nourish their hair and get to the root of scalp health. Do you want to take back control of your hair and scalp health and do it with clean, science-backed ingredients? Go to DiviOfficial.com slash Cynthia or enter Cynthia at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's D-I-V-I official.com slash Cynthia for 20% off your first order. As I mentioned, my favorite product is the scalp serum. And now that we're in the deep throes of winter weather, it is so wonderfully nourishing and moisturizing. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep 
challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of beam minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. It's really interesting because I have been an avid yoga enthusiast for the past 10 years and never really took the alternate nasal breathing very seriously. But when I read this and the acknowledgement that depending on which nostril you're depressing, you could be supporting the parasympathetic or the sympathetic nervous system. And when I really reflect on how sympathetic dominant most individuals are in the past two years haven't exactly helped everyone. I think that this is a very easy way to support your body and, and to try to support having a little bit more parasympathetic tone, a little more rest and repose, as opposed to the sympathetic dominant, where we feel like we're being chased by a rabid animal on the daily basis. Yeah. You know, there's a few dozen studies into this as well. You can take your own measurements. You can look at EEG readings. You can look at your heart rate. You can look at your blood pressure. And, and the data proves that this is definitely doing something. And what it's doing is if you're breathing in through your right nostril, that tends to activate the body, that sympathetic response where blood pressure will go up, more quote unquote heat will develop in the body. Your heart rate will go up left nostril in and out will have that opposite effect where it will calm you. So a lot of alternate nostril breathing just has you try to rebalance that system. The body is perfect in its natural place. Everyone thinks the body is faulty and that's why we're diseased. No, the body is fantastic and perfect. And so this is just balancing the body back to its place where it can function properly. Throughout the days, we're stressing our bodies in so many different ways that it's not able to do what it's naturally designed to do. And that's why we get sick. Right. I think it's important just acknowledging the role of homeostasis that our body desperately wants to find balance all on its own. Now, 
when we talk about the role of the vagus nerve, we talk about nitric oxide. I found this really interesting and in how there's all this interrelationship with the anatomy of the nose. And I promise our whole discussion will not be about this, but this really was new information for me. It, it was really profoundly. And as my listeners know, I'm super curious. And so the vagus nerve is considered to be the wanderer. It's one of the cranial nerves. How does that impact nasal anatomy? The vagus nerve? Sorry. Um, Sorry. I was talking about the role of the vagus nerve when it comes mm -hmm. to our nose and the role of nitric oxide. Okay. So there are various ways of stimulating a vagal response and stimulating vagal tone. You want vagal tone because what vagal tone is, is that's that vagus nerve being able to have access to all of the organs it's connected to. When we are stressed out, the vagus nerve stops those connections so the body can focus on fighting or running away. And when we're focused on just fighting and running away, that's what's allowed us to live, you know, modern humans. That's why we're here is having that ability, but we're not meant to be in that state all the time. And so many of us are spending most of our time in that state where that vagus nerve isn't able to connect with all those organs, which means they are essentially turned off, functionally turned off from doing what they're designed to do. So by breathing, breathing is a wonderful way of establishing more vagal tone, of calming your body down, of allowing that vagus nerve to come back online because when you breathe in this very calm way, you're sending your brain messages that the body is safe. And if the vagus nerve and if your brain knows the body is safe, it will start functioning normally again. So this is also one of the reasons that there is often humming involved with so many different practices and religions from yoga to Qigong. Mm, mm, breathing in, humming, oming, and all of that, because it so happens to be that the vagus nerve comes right down along the throat. And when you hum at these lower frequencies, it sends the vagus nerve a massage to allow the nerve to come back online again and relax the body. So all these things have been around for thousands of years before people had ever heard or or wondered what a vagus nerve was. And it's fascinating to me to find that now we have measurements and we can look and find the real mechanisms behind so many of these breathing techniques. Well, and I think it's really important and, and certainly very relevant. I know that I have a whole process I go through when I do public speaking because I get so excited. I feel my heart rate pick up and I have all this adrenaline, you know, coursing through my veins. And so part of my calming down is if I'm not humming to myself and looking like a crazy person, it's just box breathing because that will stimulate my vagus nerve and and trying to explain to people that has been my strategy. I mean, my methodology for a long time, you know, having that whole cardiology background was certainly very beneficial. The vagus nerve can be stimulated in negative ways, but this was certainly a beneficial way. Now, when we're reflecting on some of the changes that have occurred with modern society, one of the things I found interesting was overeaters become overbreathers. Can we talk about some of the things that have changed as we have become a, a more metabolically unhealthy, less metabolically flexible, obese and overweight population? How has that impacted breathing? You know, we just talked about ways that we can support breathing beneficially, but how has that impacted our breathing in negative ways? I would think that the first thing it would impact is our ability just to get air easily in and out of our bodies. 
because the larger your neck is, the more difficulty you're going to have. Men who have a neck size of over 17 and a half inches will have an increased risk of suffering from sleep apnea and other breathing dysfunctions. The reason is it doesn't matter what this is fascinating if it's muscle or if it's fat or if it's whatever, because it will just tend to crowd the airways, which is why so many weightlifters, you look at these people and they've got 0.2% body fat, they're all muscle but they suffer from terrible sleep apnea and chronic breathing problems because they haven't been working out their throats. They haven't been working out their airways. They're working out their pecs and their biceps, but they're not working out the most important channel through which we get energy. And that's our airways, even more than our stomachs, more than we eat. We get most energy from the air we breathe. So I think that that's one of the issues and another problem with so much of the population becoming obese and how weight affects breathing is having too much weight, too much fat specifically around the chest area, around the abdomen can actually impede your ability to take a free and easy breath in and out. It's no coincidence that yogis, what is yoga? but a technology of breathing and stretching. And those two things complement one another. There is no yoga without breathing. The reason you stretch is to allow you to breathe more easily. So when you have a corset around you that does not allow you to do that, even if you want to breathe in a healthy way, you can't. So you tend to breathe up into the chest, through the mouth too much, which can actually make it harder for you to lose weight. So it's this very evil little perfect storm of problems that happens when your body gets way out of balance and it makes it harder for you to get back into balance. Well, it's interesting. There was a cardiologist I worked with when I was a new nurse practitioner many years ago, and he used, that was his standard refrain. He would walk in to do a consult and if he perceived someone's neck size was at least 17 inches, he would say, what shirt size do you wear? And of course, this patient would never have any idea that there was any correlation. And the next thing he would be doing would be ordering a polysonography test because he said, you probably have sleep apnea. So yes, that 17 inches, it is not as benign as people like to think it is. And so I, I think on a lot of levels, we've gotten conditioned as a society that we don't breathe very deeply and whether or not it's through restriction from corsetry or clothing or visceral fat from being overfed, we definitely put ourselves in a position. I say we as a society, not we as in you and I, but we as a society have really detrimentally impacted our ability to breathe properly. And like I said earlier, so many of us, we take breathing for granted until we have a problem. Yeah. And if you look at, if we flip this a little bit and you look at, so what are the causes of so much of the population becoming overweight? Well, it's the food we eat, obviously. It's all the stuff we're drinking. Obviously it's sedentary lifestyles that ties into it as well. But it's interesting when you start looking into sleep medicine and the people who study this, that the way you breathe at night, your sleep quality can significantly affect your weight. So if you are struggling to sleep and you have sleep apnea, that will increase your risk of having adult onset diabetes. It will also increase your risk of having insulin resistance, on it will, which is the, becomes adult onset diabetes, but it also spikes your blood sugar. So all of these things just make you metabolically imbalanced. And you can survive this way for a long time, but that doesn't mean you're healthy. 
And so you look at this vicious cycle of poor breathing, how it can lead to weight problems, then how weight problems can lead to poor breathing. And it's so hard to get out of that trap. But the very first step is to diagnose these issues and provide people with some information on what it is and what they can do to improve their breathing. Absolutely. And one of the things I found really interesting was talking about, and you mentioned earlier that you went to this very specialized museum in Philadelphia. And I know that museum because my mom was at University of Pennsylvania for a long period of time. There are a lot of very interesting museums in Philadelphia and looking at bones, looking at facial structure. What are some of the changes that have occurred? You know, you had mentioned, you kind of alluded to mouths being smaller, you know, some of the craniofacial changes that have occurred, but the net impact of mouths being smaller, facial bones being stunted, crooked teeth, you know, what is the significance of all this in terms of, you know, what are the things people can do if someone's listening? And, you know, certainly I'm a good example of this. I actually have started thinking thoughtfully about some of these things myself, because I've always been told I have a small mouth. I have big teeth. I had teeth extracted the net impact of what we can do proactively. If we know that we already have this bone physiology, this bone structure, you can't, most of us can't change it unless you do something surgically, but what can people do? I found some of the things that you did in terms of chewing that can impact the stimulation of bone remodeling, which I found fascinating. So I think the first thing you need to do is to look at well, what are the problems associated with having a mouth that's too small for your face? Okay, so we know it's crooked teeth. A lot of people say, I don't care if my airway in my mouth is too small because I want to breathe through my nose. Well, if only it were that simple. What happens when your mouth is too small is that upper palate tends to grow up instead of out. So you want that upper palate to grow laterally, which is why if you look at an ancient skull, they have these gorgeous upper palates that are perfectly balanced, aligned, and they're flat and they're extremely wide. If you look at a modern palette, I'm a great example, that palette tends to go up. And when that palette tends to go up, it can impede the airflow in your nose. What happens then? It's harder to breathe through your nose. What do you do then? You breathe through your mouth. Okay. Well, now because your mouth is still so small, that airway is compromised in your mouth. So what do you have? Extreme breathing dysfunction and the sleep disorder breathing and all of that laundry list of problems that comes with that. So this, I want to be very clear to everybody. This is not my hypothesis. This is not my theory. I'm not paid to write theories. Okay. I go out in the field and report on things from experts in the field. This is an established scientific fact and we've known it forever and no one wants to talk about it, which I think is absolutely bizarre, because my understanding is you want to start with a core issue and then work up from there. OK, what's my core problem? I'm going to fix that core problem and all the other symptoms tend to go away. So that leads us to the next part here is, well, what do you do, right? You can't go back in time. If you've had teeth extracted, like I have, like you have, like most people have, if you've had braces and headgear and retainers, I had all that stuff, you know, as well, what, what do you do? And I think that it's much easier when you're younger, because when you're younger, you can forming and creating change and building that better foundation is so much easier because you're more malleable, Right. When you're older, what do you do? You're in middle age. You're like, my mouth's too small. I'm having breathing problems. 
I'm not here to provide a blanket prescription for everyone because there is no such thing. Everyone is suffering from a slightly different, not everyone, most people are suffering from a slightly different breathing dysfunction. So what you can do is look at the foundation of, of what you need to do is to diagnose where the problem is. So for me, my airway is too small. My mouth is too small. I have trouble breathing through my nose. It was nothing structural. So I just forced myself to breathe through my nose more. Guess what happens? Those erectile tissues open up. You can breathe through your nose much easier. If you're talking about chewing stress and trying to expand your mouth, you can do that surgically, which has been shown to be incredibly effective for sleep apnea, for other breathing issues. And it also changes the way your face looks. Some people show some benefit of chewing hard foods. And when you're chewing, you tend to tone your airway. And by toning your airway, you allow it to become more fit so that air can more easily enter and exit your body instead of going every time you breathe, it will sound like this. If you're hearing nothing, that's because my airway is more fit than it was before. So that's a very convoluted answer to a very simple question, but I can't offer one answer to that because there are so many variables. Well, and I think that here in the United States, there's been such a focus on aesthetics aesthetics before really looking at root cause. So I a hundred percent am aligned with what you're saying. And I think, you know, know better, do better. But what I, I find most interesting is that when I brought this discussion up with my dentist, I now I'm in a new city, new dentist. He looked at me like I potentially might've been a little bit crazy. And I said, I would hope you would be open-minded enough because for me, never having heard this information before, it really resonated. And I think that's the, you know, traditional kind of challenge with a more traditional allopathic role model as we treat symptoms. Symptoms are overcrowding, overbite, you know, the solution for most of that kind of methodology is that we then go on to straighten teeth, pull teeth, put headgear on. And yes, I, I suffered with headgear, but I didn't even have the one that went behind my neck. I had the one that went on my head because <laughs> I had an overbite, but realizing that there's so much more to it. And I always think about Weston A. Price. And when I did a functional nutrition program, he talked about all these indigenous cultures and how beautiful their teeth were and how it wasn't until we got to a, a point where we were eating highly processed, hyperpalatable food, that that was what created all the dental caries. And so that was a lot of the focus of his work. But really what I'm hearing is, is that over time, this has become much more of an issue. And I would imagine for most people listening that some of this is genetics, but it's also our choice in, you know, the types of foods that we eat, because we are definitely not going to be building those masseter muscles. If we are eating essentially, you know, baby food, if we're eating applesauce and soft foods, you actually have to eat crunchy, natural foods. I'm not talking about eating chips, but eating foods in a more natural state that are going to stimulate the improvement in that muscle. And maybe we can talk about the masseter muscle because some people may not be familiar with what that muscle actually does, but it's a very important one. So first starting off with your, your dentist looking at you like you were crazy. This is exactly what I heard years and years ago when I started asking some dentists about this. And it just reminded me of, you know, any doctor 20 years ago, if you would have said, you know, I think think the problem with so many people becoming obese might be actually tied to this low fat food. So I'm going to eat more fats right now because I think if I eat more fats, my body is going to lose weight. 
any doc, not any, the vast majority of doctors you would talk to would say, you are absolutely insane. You need to stay on this extremely high carb, high sugar diet of processed foods that has no salt in it because this is how you lose weight and this is heart healthy. We know now that that is complete and utter garbage <laughs> and there are a zillion books to prove it and there are whole conferences i go to these conferences with leaders in the field from harvard from boston i mean all over the place are speaking at this knowing it's garbage so i think you have to first of all accept that science is not a closed book it is constantly changing and anyone who is still adhering to a doctrine that was laid out 50 years ago when they were in school and hasn't changed their mind any little bit is not looking at what real science is. And after that, you know, do your own research. We're lucky enough to live in an era where there are different ways of getting information, right? You can go and look at medical studies. You can go to a library. You can listen to podcasts by by doctors and then people who, who really know what they're talking about and learn this stuff. So, you know, that's a long way of saying things are constantly changing. The news about airway health and dentistry is actually that news is very old news. Everything I'm telling you has was talked about 125 years ago, and we're just sort of relearning it right now and readopting what we learned so long ago. And I think the more that we do that, the more we're able to balance our bodies and get ourselves back to breathing right, which is so important. Yeah, and it's interesting. I my kind of standard mantra is, and in this, I was raised this way. I went to a school that encouraged this, was that we should question everything. Like we should be intellectually curious. And I remember saying to colleagues of mine probably 10 years ago, it all starts with food. And and everything I had been telling patients in the early 2000s, I look at now and I cringe. I always say, no better, do better but we should be evolving. We should be changing our opinions. We should be evolving as a clinician or an individual. And so we should be questioning things. And, and I think that that's really important. Although there's a degree of cognitive dissonance, I'm not necessarily with my field, but with a lot of individuals these days that sometimes makes it challenging, but I remind people that we really should be questioning dogma. We shouldn't remain dogmatic and rigid that we should acknowledge that, you know, over time we may change our opinions and that is completely okay. And certainly the, the nutritional paradigms and looking at the health of our patients over the last 20 years, it's not getting better. It's certainly heading in the wrong direction. So we need to adopt different principles and philosophies. Now, one of the things that as someone who is incredibly, you know, I'm definitely one of those individuals that struggles with being in a closed space. Your whole discussion about the Paris catacombs, I found both interesting and horrifyingly terrifying. I would love for you to touch on, you know, that whole process of crawling around the catacombs or anyone that's been to Paris. This is one of those kind of probably less well-known activities that you can do, but I would have, I would imagine that you found it fascinating, but by the same token, I'm, as I was listening or reading rather your book, imagining what it must've been like to be crawling around in such narrow places. I really have to give it to you for being in a position where you felt comfortable doing that and, and doing it for the benefit of your science readers. 
First of all, I wish I had gone to the schools you went to because I was told to question nothing, <laughs> you know, and everything that I learned, and including growing up, you know, question nothing. This is the doctrine. This is the word. Now go on on your way and continue repeating this word. So I think it's later on in life you start questioning things. And, and I think a lot of people are questioning a lot of things right now, which I think is healthy. If you look at the founding of the Royal Society in England, you know, their motto is take nobody's word for it. <laughs> that was, uh, you know, Isaac Newton was saying that. And where would we be in science if everyone was accepting what someone else had said? The only way to progress is to challenge and to test things and not to throw things out all the time, just without testing, to really test them and measure them and, and see what holds up and see what doesn't. Science isn't supposed to be about opinions. It's supposed to be about looking at data. Okay, I'll hop off my soapbox and tell you about the Paris catacombs. So before I was able to get to the University of Pennsylvania, to the Morton Collection, I could not get access to human skulls. And I called up some different museums. Nobody wanted to talk to me. And this is usually the plight of many reporters. They're like, wait, you want to look at ancient skulls because you're interested in breathing? You know, no, not going to work here. So I was in Paris and through a friend of a friend who shall remain anonymous, I was able to connect with these people who have been able to, over the past several years, to get access to about 170 miles of these underground catacombs that are beneath the streets of Paris. And a lot of people know the catacombs from the sanctioned tour, where they take you down this tour and you see these skulls and you go back up. No, no, no. The real catacombs or quarries are all of these unsanctioned areas, which are also illegal to be trampling in. And that's where there are over 6 million human skulls dating back thousands and thousands of years. So I didn't know if I was going to get access to a museum and I wanted to see the difference in our faces and you can see it online. That's cool, but I'm a reporter. I need to go out in the field and do this. So I was given the opportunity to do this. I had no idea what I was getting into. I thought it was going to be a half an hour long stroll with these people. And I knew something was terribly off when they showed up with rain boots up to their knees and overalls and headlamps. And I was sitting there, you know, in a sport coat and sneakers. And so it was very dirty. Uh, but it allowed me to, I got what I was looking for, which I could see skulls dating back hundreds of years. And even though I'm so far from being an expert on skulls, you don't need to be an expert to see. It's so dramatic what has happened to us in just a few hundred years of industrialization, how our faces have changed, how our teeth have changed, how our breathing has changed. And when you see it right there, when you're 60 feet below the streets of Paris, you know, it sticks with you. And I can't wait to go back there if they'll invite me again. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. 
Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armour's colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced. And it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. What an incredible experience. I would imagine, you know, your curiosity must have really been piqued, you know, not just with the the differences in how you were dressed compared to your colleagues that you, you were in the catacombs with. But I'm curious, you know, when you think about or you reflect on the differences that you saw when you were in the catacombs or when you were in Philadelphia, your working kind of hypothesis of what has contributed to the changes in the anatomy of our faces, is a lot of it driven by the dietary changes or the fact that we're now consuming more highly processed foods? I mean, what is really, I'm just out of curiosity, I'm just asking, you know, what is driving most of those changes? Is it imagining that it's the palates are getting and our faces are just getting smaller and smaller over time? Yeah, well, so it's not my hypothesis and it's not even a theory this is a fact and it's a fact that we've known for just about a hundred years now starting with the work of weston price who spent 10 years studying this stuff and found in a single generation of converting from a traditional diet to a diet of industrialized foods about 50 percent of the population is going to get crooked teeth and they're going to have respiratory issues that come with that after that next generation, I think it's about 70. The next generation, it's about 80, 85. The generation after that, look around, that's us. And you know, it's upwards of 90. So Robert Corcini 
who I was lucky enough to talk to, and I'll be with him at a conference coming up here, picked up all of this research from Price because Price released this 500 page book, really hard to read. Some people loved it. Other people hated it. They said he was too opinionated, whatever. Data is data. And I think you can very clearly see what has happened. So Robert Corcini, who was a professor in Chicago, picked this up in the 70s and found exactly what Price had found. So more specifically, the mechanism by which we became such widespread crooked teeth is chewing stress, that masticatory stress. And this is what Daniel Lieberman had found at Harvard. And this is what Corcini had found as well. So the food being nutritionally deficient, obviously it wasn't going to help us, right? That played a part, but it was a smaller part than chewing stress. When we're young and developing, we need that constant chewing stress, which is why kids who have spent, you know, two plus years being breastfed will have a different mouth than people, than kids who have been bottle fed. I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. So to be very clear, I'm providing you with information. I have no opinions about this and, and I've gotten lectured many times. So that is a scientific fact. And if kids eat very soft food when they're growing up, soft processed foods, they don't get that chewing stress they need to build the proper skeletature and musculature of their faces. They're just as beautiful as anyone's kids. Another thing, I'm not going to get into this argument. I'm providing you with information that researchers have accumulated over decades as to why our teeth have grown crooked and why we suffer from breathing problems because of that. It's really fascinating because one of the things in your book that I made sure I wrote down was that engaging those muscles, the masseter muscles actually increases stem cell activity, which then, you know, further potentiates has that net impact on the fit, not only the facial muscles, but bone changes, which I found really, really interesting. You know, I certainly trained in inner city Baltimore and, you know, I was exposed to a very different environment than I had as a suburban individual. And I remember, you know, saying to my clinical faculty that the amount of processed foods that kids were growing up with, because we would sometimes be in doing, you know, home visits. And it was just absolutely heartbreaking when we're in an environment where our kids from a very young age are eating just processed foods, they're never going to develop the musculature in their mouths and the bone structure that they're going to need to avoid, as you mentioned, the aforementioned crooked teeth smaller mouths, et cetera. I find it absolutely fascinating. And what is the significance of the empty nose syndrome? Oh, I want to just go back to a few things that you mentioned. So not only are the benefits of chewing tied to allowing you to grow uh, to your epigenetic potential, right? To allow you to build more bone, more musculature, to have a more toned airway, but you also increase blood flow to the brain. When you chew, you enter into a parasympathetic state, which is why you salivate. Salivation comes with being in a parasympathetic state, which is why it's really hard to digest food if you're completely stressed out. So in, in that parasympathetic state, that's when the body is able to build bone. So this is one of the reasons why it's so harmful to people to have sleep disordered breathing, especially for kids, or to be gnashing your teeth, because there is a difference of the chewing and the stress you do when you clench your jaw, both sides of your molars are clenched down. That is sympathetic stress, which is why you do that when you're boxing or you're stressed out. When people grind their teeth all night, 
Some dentists and some researchers have said that's eliciting a sympathetic response, which makes it hard to grow more bone. Those osteoblasts need a parasympathetic response. So chewing, if you think about chewing a carrot right now, you go from one side to the other, okay? That elicits that parasympathetic response, that relaxation response, not clenching your jaw down. I just want to, I know that your listeners are more scientific, but that to me, I think is so fascinating and how that, how chewing can play a role in, you know, how you look, how you breathe, how your brain functions and more. And our ancestors used to chew for about three hours a day. And how often do we chew today? Not at all. Most of us don't chew much much at all because all the food is so soft. So next, empty nose syndrome. Okay. So a lot of people have structural issues in their noses. And because of that, they elect to have surgery, which can be absolutely life-changing in a bunch of wonderful ways for so many. I've talked with dozens and dozens of people who said, oh my God, I can breathe out of my nose now. It's the most amazing thing. My sleep's better. Athletic performance is better. Stress is down. That's all great. But like with anything else, sometimes surgeons can be a little too overzealous and they can tend to take out too many of the structures of the nose. And when you do this, breathing becomes much worse and it becomes so bad that it affects your mental health. It affects your physical health. It affects your sleep quality and more. So the message behind all of this is just like anything else, go in conservatively, try to find other therapies, other ways to clear your nose first. I've found from many very responsible ENTs, they said not everyone needs surgery. In fact, a lot of people can benefit much more from not having surgery. If you do do surgery, make sure the ENT you're working with knows that taking out less is oftentimes much more beneficial to you. I have talked to so many people with this empty nose syndrome you do not want to have this. They can't breathe. They have no sensation of breathing. They're constantly out of breath. So when you talk to them, they go, (laughs) they can't sleep and everyone thinks they're crazy. They're not. And this has been proven by looking at CAT scans and airflow. It really must be incredibly unfortunate. And I would imagine that would be absolutely miserable. I do want to come back to the concept of digestion starts in the brain, why that's so important. I talk a lot about that, but I remind individuals that when we're in the sympathetic dominant state, we can't properly set our bodies up for success with digestion. We can't detoxify. We can't secrete adequate amounts of bile to break down and emulsify fats. And so that, you know, dovetails nicely into that discussion. So thank you for that. And the empty nose syndrome to me almost sounds as if patients are suffocating because they never feel like they have enough air. They never feel like they have enough oxygen and how miserable that must be. I'm I'm really grateful that you brought that up because I, without question, had patients that had had multiple sinus surgeries, had, you know, multiple rhinoplasties, all with the intent of being able to improve their breathing, but ultimately ending up in a situation that likely was not correctable, that they were just going to have to live out the rest of their lives, really feeling like they were coming from a place of suffering. And it was incredibly unfortunate. So Dr. Jack or Nyack is one of the world leaders in helping people with empty nose syndrome down at Stanford. People fly in 
from every imaginable country because they were told, what, you have more space in your nose. You should be happy. You should be thanking me. Like, I can't sleep because those nerve endings that tell your brain that you're breathing, some of them are in the nose. And without that pressure in the nose, you don't get the signals that you're breathing. So at night, they keep waking up, suffocating over and over and over. I mean, it's truly awful. So here is just the most crazy thing is that NIAC is the specialist in restoring the nose to the way it was supposed to be before that extremely invasive surgery occurred. So he also helps clear up the nose in a very responsible way. Same thing with Noah Siegel at, at Harvard. But it's ironic that we're now using pig tissue to try to recreate the natural structures of the nose so we can breathe normally. But that's, that's modern life here, everybody. Absolutely. Surgery to remove it and then a surgery to put it back in. I mean, that's, there you go. Well, and I think it really speaks to the fact that surgery should be the last, the end result when everything else has failed. And that's certainly a message that I know you and I are very aligned on. The last thing you should do is surgery. It should be everything else has not worked or has been ineffective or has not met your needs. And then you consider surgery and then you actually go to people. This is what they do. You know, you've mentioned two clinicians you wrote about them both in the book who sound incredibly talented and are able to do very delicate surgeries because I know that if I were ever to need nasal surgery, I would want to be going to someone who just works on noses, not just from a cosmetic perspective, but someone who works on the physiology within the nose to make it anatomically conducive to being able to breathe better. Yeah. You know, at Ohio state now they've developed, uh, aerodynamic models so they can see how much they would have to clear out. And I think that that's going to be the future is to take a CAT scan, look at where the problem is, say, okay, if I snip this, this, and this, this will create the natural airflow to your, the rest of your airway, which I mean, otherwise you're going in blind and just drilling stuff out. It just doesn't seem like a good idea. And I just want to be very clear again, surgery is fantastic. I mean, what an amazing thing that if you have polyps or a severely deviated septum, you can fix it. So surgery is great. It just has to be done responsibly and when you really need it. Absolutely. Now, I would love to end our conversation today really talking about breathing because for me, when I was reading the book and considering something that I took for granted all the time, you brought up different types of breathing, you know, Tomo, and I may be mispronouncing that, you know, and I thought it was very interesting and very telling that there's more to breathing than just breathing in and out that you can impact your heart rate, as we've kind of alluded to, if we stimulate the vagus nerve, but it also impacts immune function and temperature regulation, as well as, you know, stimulation and secretion of specific neurotransmitters. And I always think about Wim Hof, who I've had the honor of being able to connect with, but I know that some of his work is reflective of this technique. So if you get a book on pranayama or qigong or whatever, you can find these books filled with hundreds and hundreds of different breathing techniques. The first question you ask is, well, what do I do? Where do I start? Oftentimes the descriptions are really confusing. They're extremely detailed. So instead of focusing just on a few specific techniques, what I tried to do is put these all in certain groups, right? Because so many of these techniques are doing the exact same thing. They're either making you breathe too much to elicit a stress response, 
and to have hormetic response in your body, which is very acute stress, which can be so beneficial, or they're having you breathe very slowly to slow yourself down and then hold your breath and then breathe very slowly again. So you can call these techniques whatever you want, but they all fall into about three or four different categories. What's fascinating to me, at least, was that by really focusing on these breathing techniques and controlling them, you can do things that are supposed to be impossible. You can take control of your autonomic nervous system. It's supposed to be impossible. It's called autonomic, which means automatic, which means beyond our control. Wrong. You can take control of it. You can influence your immune function. Wim Hof has certainly shown that. You can heat your body up on command, and you can use breathing to help heal yourself of several chronic conditions. Sounds crazy until you look at the science and until you try it yourself. So I think that people don't have to be obsessed with, oh, I only do this school of breathing. Oh, I only want to do this school of breathing. And a lot of schools, much to their detriment, I think, is they say, this is the best thing. You can only breathe this way. Buteco, you just breathe very little bit. And this is the only thing we're focusing on, CO2. There are benefits to all different kinds of breathing. It depends on what you want and what you're looking for. And then luckily, so many of these different breathing techniques, you can just learn for free. They're available to everyone everywhere. No one's found a way to really effectively, you know, market these things yet. I'm, I'm sure that's coming, but, and so it's accessible and open to everyone and you can see what works for you. I think that's really key is, is finding what makes the most sense. You know, I read with great interest about you know, carbon dioxide therapies, which I thought was really interesting because, you know, coming from a more traditional allopathic background, you know, we always worried about CO2 poisoning, you know, there are people or carbon monoxide poisoning would come into the emergency room, but I found, you know, this carbon dioxide therapies to be really, really interesting. And I'm sure that must've been for you as you were guinea pigging yourself through this entire process must've been really I guess the best way I would say is in the name of science, putting yourself in a position where you're uncomfortable. There were definitely a lot of trials of, you know, trying different therapies, you know, certainly when you were out with your friend in California and you were having your nose obstructed for two weeks and watching the net impact on your metabolic health and sleep quality, et cetera. I think in the name of science, it's really fascinating. Yeah. And you know, with, if you look at CO2 and carbon monoxide, these are extremely dangerous gases in high quantity. So don't ever think they aren't keep that monitor up in your house. Like the carbon monoxide is especially extremely damaging and carbon dioxide in high levels is very, very bad for you as well. But we tend to want to categorize things as good or bad. And we tend to want to look at things in a, this very binary way, but that's not how our bodies work. Just like we say, stress is bad. Why do I want to stress? Short-term stress is really, really good for you, right? And, and so now that that is starting to come out, it's the same thing with diet. You know, all the things that were supposed to be bad, actually in small quantities can be really good for us. So carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide is another thing. No, that's any amount of carbon monoxide is uh, bad news. But carbon dioxide, we need a balance of CO2 in our bodies for oxygen to do its thing. And any pulmonologist, any cardiologist, any doctor knows this, but we have vilified 
carbon dioxide because we associate it with, with climate change, which is really bad. There is too much CO2 in the atmosphere, but in our bodies, we need a balance. And most of us, I don't know if I'll say most of us, a large population of us, how's that for being a little more diplomatic, is CO2 deficient. So they will actually benefit from breathing slower to build up a little more CO2 because with a little more CO2, you calm your body down. It's a very powerful vasodilator. It allows for more circulation. You'll notice when you breathe more slowly that you feel your toes or fingers maybe will start warming up. That's from an increase of circulation. So some very industrious researchers found, well, if CO2, if a little is good for us, maybe a lot's going to be really good for us. Some of that was shown to be false, but in some cases for people with severe mental problems, it was found to be extremely effective. And who led this charge was Yale, Yandel Henderson at Yale, spent decades studying the effects of CO2. And it was absolutely bizarre to me that this science was not unproven. It just was sort of forgotten about. And it's exciting to see so much of this science starting to come back. CO2 therapies for asthma, CO2 therapies for panic, anxiety. They were even using it for schizophrenia, which they found to be extremely effective in some studies. Uh, what can we do now? We can study it again and we can measure it. It's a, it's a very cheap therapy, right? Which I think is probably one of the problems why it won't be studied. You can't patent CO2. And so what... Why would you want to give money to explore that further? But that's just me being crass. I hope that some people take this up and, and look into it a little further. Absolutely. And I'm so very grateful for you bringing you know, this information, not only to the masses, but to clinicians to kind of bring up that there are modalities that are far more simple. And as you mentioned, you know, not being able to market something, not being able to put it in a pill form and have big pharma, you know, farm it out to the masses. What are your new projects? Are you working on any new books? Are there any new areas of interest that you're working on right now? Well, since the book has come out, I've been lucky enough to now be in touch with dozens and dozens of doctors and cardiologists and pulmonologists and, and all the rest. And it's fascinating. They're conducting some new studies. I'm trying to help out uh, when I can. And it's wonderful just to be within this community, listening more. I'm not working on a breath two. People keep asking me, when is breath two coming out? And maybe if I was a, a smarter businessman, that that would happen, but it's not. I'm just still fascinated with the subject and I want to get the word out. I want people to have a choice. You can't force people to do anything, but what you can offer is for people who want to help themselves, you can give them a choice. I don't feel that choice with breathing and breathing therapies has been as widespread as it could be. So I want to help uh, trumpet that about. But uh, mostly I'm just resetting right now. I've been on a, a very extended book tour for about 20 months. So uh, I am going to come back and hibernate here in my outdoor office here and get started with a bunch of new research. We've got some film projects coming up. We've got a, another European tour and a Japanese tour coming up. So uh, still in the world, but uh, no breath to book. I'm, I'm sorry to say. No, oh, well, great. Well, please let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to you know, I think one of the things I found humorous was that when I was doing my research for the book was that when you went to, I guess, 
find an Instagram handle that someone had taken your name. So, which I thought was probably both frustrating for you and humorous at the same time. How can people connect with you on social media or on your website? Yeah, I think the same jerk took the URL. So that's why I had to put an MR, a Mr. James Nestor. People thought I was doing that for some formality. Uh, you know, it was that or the real James Nestor. So so you can take your pick. So it's MR James Nestor. That's N-E-S-T-O-R.com. And that will give you a site that has about 400, 500 different scientific references. There are also interviews I've done with leaders in the field of breathing, of the biochemistry of breathing, biomechanics of breathing. There's Harvard professors on there talking about breathing in infants. There are also various breathing techniques. Uh, Everything is free. There's no paywall. It's available for everyone. There's some videos and data sheets for this stuff that really sounds like it is impossible. Like you can't heat your body up with breathing. Check out the studies done at at Harvard in the 1980s of monks doing just that. And all of that's on the site. I'm also on this thing called Instagram, which is a wild and weird and pretty annoying world. But uh, my handle is Mr. James Nestor. I'm trying to post more uh, per my publisher's request, but uh, I've been a little busy. So I'll get to it when I can. Well, thank you. It's been such a joy to connect with you today. Thank you for your time. Thanks a lot for having me. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 